Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today on Inking Out Loud, we're joined by special guest Alex from A Hero's Journey podcast. He's sitting down with us. Thanks for joining, Alex. Oh, thanks for having me. Real excited to talk Rage of Dragons. Yeah, it, yeah. As, as Alex has just said, we are here to discuss The Rage of Dragons by Evan Winter, the first in his fantasy series, The Burning. I myself just blasted through this book in about two days, so let's get right down to it. Drew, summarize The Rage of Dragons for us, please. Yeah, so I, I also read this book in about two days. Uh, um, not not entirely of my uh, my choosing. I just had a, a absolute ton to do over the last uh, last couple weeks. But uh, yeah, so this book kicks off with a curiously long prologue covering the arrival of the Omehi people on the shores of a new and hostile continent. They are nearly overwhelmed by the natives, but with the help of some timely dragons, win the day and establish a new nation. A couple hundred years later, Tao is a young peasant boy, the son of a soldier, and training along with his nobleman friend Jabari to become a warrior himself. A massive raid on the nearby town of Daba throws Tao into combat for the first time and sets off a sequence of events that will change his life. His father is killed through the capriciousness of Jabari's older brother, Lekon, as well as the nobleman Abasi Odili. Tao is banished, but swears vengeance. Before leaving his home of Karim, he kills Lekon, having his face mutilated in the process. From there, he heads to the local capital city of Kigambe to enter the open testing and attempt to gain the ranks of the common soldiers, the Ihashe. Tao manages to impress one of the most prestigious trainers, a man named Jayed, and he enters training with an elite group of young men. The majority of the book is spent on Tao's training, as he discovers his natural talents are incredible, but, on their own, no match for those of the higher castes, and if he is to achieve his vengeance, he must kill several of those nobles. To make up for his deficiencies, Tao undertakes training in the underworld, Isi Hogo, the realm of demons. There, he can spend minutes for every second in the real world, giving him more time to train. The training comes with a cost, however, as each time he enters, he must be killed by the demons to return to the real world. Tao's squad, or Scale, rapidly prove themselves to be the best of the common soldiers, even beating noble scales in skirmishes. Meanwhile, Tao's teenage love, Zuri, is training to be a gifted, one of the select women who can safely enter Isihogo and harness the powers there. Tao, still bent on avenging his father's death, follows Odili into the crag and spies upon a planned peace treaty between the Omehi and their enemies, the Hedeni. Ultimately, Tao finds himself matched against one of his targets. In a skirmish, he fights against the young man Kellen Okar, who dueled Tao's father. Tao defeats Kellen, but does not manage to kill him, and soon afterward, Odili's true duplicity is revealed. He engineered an ambush on the Hedeni and incited a full-scale invasion, just as he launched a coup against the queen. Tao, with the help of his scale, Zuri, and Kellen, save the queen. Tao kills Odili's superhuman Ingoyama bodyguard and helps turn back Odili's soldiers. Zuri entreats the youngling dragon in the citadel and destroys Odili's army, but ultimately is killed in turn by the dragon. With a tenuous and temporary peace established by the queen, Tao, in the end, is chosen as her champion and given the charge of defeating the treacherous Odili. Boom! That was a beast of a summary. (laughs) That was. He's good at those. If I let him do it every week. So. So. Let's talk about the Rage of Dragons, guys. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the Rage of Dragons, gentlemen. Um, Starting with style. 
So, I want to say start by saying that Drew on the Inking Out Loud podcast, we've really got to start picking more exciting books to cover because this may be the slowest book that we've read yet. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just wanted to see the look on your face when I said that. I've been joking about that for quite a while now. Complaining about slow books that we've been doing. And oh my God, this one made up for it. The pace was absolutely insane. How'd you guys find it? Alex, I'll start with Alex. Yeah, so I think the beginning is a little slow, especially with that prologue. But as soon as we get to um, training, Tao... It takes off. It does not stop until the very, very end. Yeah, the the pace is definitely, um, you know, moves along at a steady clip. There's a lot of action. Uh, events move quickly. There's not a whole lot of time for, like, you know, characters sitting around and being introspective or anything, um, which kind of fits, uh, as as we'll talk about when we get to Tao uh, in our character discussion. Um, but uh, I, I will have to say, as far as reading the book, it, like, the, the sequence of events moves quickly, but the book did drag through the middle portion for me because so much of it was just, like, sword fight, another sword fight, another sword fight, another sword fight... Yep. Another sword fight, another sword, like, you know, and so there, there's only so many, there, there are only so many different ways that an author can write a, another sword fight, right? You know, and so uh, I, I started really gravitating toward the scenes where it was more than just a sword fight. It was more than just, oh, a description of his training or, or a skirmish. It's It was those moments when there was... Uh, a, a real stake for the characters you know things like his first duel uh with kellen in in the citadel in, in the circle in front of zuri or uh you know the uh the first time he goes into isihogo to to fight the demons you know moments that have more going on than just action and blood and violence you know and so even though the events of the book were fast-paced a good chunk of the book was slow for me, if that yes. makes sense. I'll, I'll admit that once I was about halfway through it, well, maybe maybe less than halfway, maybe about a third of the way through the book, I was having serious doubts as to whether or not I'd finish it. But <laughs> winter gave me enough. And by the time I got to the three-quarter mark, I think I was like, oh, I'm finishing this tonight. I don't care what I'm doing. I am <laughs> blasting through the rest of this. It did feel pretty formulaic. Ooh. It was pretty repetitive through the middle. It did drag for me a little bit. Ooh, okay, well, you just gave me the perfect uh, entrance into my next style point. I aim to please. You just used the word blasting. Okay. Nitpicky, I know, but it drove me nuts. How many times a, a person swinging a sword was described as firing his sword or blasting his sword. I'm like, these are these are swords, not guns. <laughs> I'm searching in my e-reader right now for the... Blasted frequency or of... fired. Blasted... Oh, yep, so yep. Blasting times. into Chinidu's side, blasting him in the shin, blasting back the other way, blasting wind's grape-colored landscape, blasting her from existence. You're right. <laughs> it's, it's all over the place. So I'm like... They, they, they shouldn't... Like, these words are anachronistic. They don't have things to fire or blast, you know? Like, uh, and I know that's that's a nitpicky, but that's 
I that was something that really pulled me out of a couple of scenes where I was like, "Can you, can you just not?" And and I get I get why <laughs> that that happens because oh, he's man. written so many different duels and sword fights and stuff. There are only so many different ways you can describe a character swinging a sword, and he's trying to mix it up, but didn't work for me. <laughs> I'll say pretty much every complaint I have is also nitpicky in nature, so I can't fault you for that. What about you, Alex? Any any nitpicks that come to mind? Um, not really a nitpick, but just kind of going off this fight scenes, I think one of the ways that Winter tries to mix up the fight is putting some like emotion in the fight. Like Drew is saying in those scenes where you know, Tao is fighting Kellen for the first time. He doesn't just describe the fighting. He describes how Tao is feeling during the fight. And I think that gives much more depth to the scenes. Um, I, and I think that happens for a lot of scenes throughout the book. Yeah, it, it ultimately felt like some of the the fight scenes were, weren't necessary. Because it's like when, when you have about half of them, maybe a little more than half of them, where there's like real dynamic character movement going on where where Tao is growing or learning or regressing in some cases uh, Tao is changing and it's not just about like oh look at the cool swords you know look look at the the bronze swords you know and then there are some scenes and I'm like like this is a, a 520 page book that really not that much happens it didn't need to be 520 pages it could have been 400 and 410, 420. I think it would have been a better book. Like it's there's a good book in here for sure. But it it uh, and I guess this is this is another style, you know, ancillary thing is like, as I understand it, this was a self published book. It was. I just yes. looked that up to you. Yeah. Yeah. This book needed an editor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can say that. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure he'll have one going forward. He's got a four book deal now. Yes. Oh, four books. Oh, I thought it yeah. was only three. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's another uh, interesting thing for me, the four book series. So this doesn't have that same feel as a start to a trilogy, right? It's, mm -hmm. I think, a little less kind of what you're saying. It, it, Not a lot happens in the book. A little less happens in the book than we would expect from a traditionally three-story right. pace. Yeah, and and uh, <laughs> to, to go off Alex's, uh, you know, position of strength here, the hero's journey this is very much a book with a hero's journey in it and uh and on top of that though like i think i think there's a pretty clear hero's journey like an overarching hero's journey set up for the series as a whole but for this book if you compare this story with uh, another ubiquitous hero's journey story let's talk star wars luke's training doesn't really take up much space in the story here, like, 60-70% of the book is spent on Tao's, like, trials. You know, they're, you know, you talk about the trials early on in Hero's Journey and, and how they usually come in threes. Here, there's, like, three sets of threes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's and, very fair. Yeah, and so it's like... That to me was was indicative of like okay no he's really trying to play the long game with Tao's character arc and and I I think that's you know it's a fair thing to do as an author I 
I was just kind of questioning, did he really need to spend that much space on such a small part of his character arc here at the beginning? You know? Just to emphasize what Drew's saying of how this fits the hero's journey, we discussed this on my podcast a while ago, and out of the 17 steps in the hero's journey, we gave it 12, probably could have given it 13. It's pretty strong. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A journey was... Yeah, we're kind of like uh, uh, approaching the the reason that I was gonna, you know, um, compliment Winter's work on Tao as a character. Uh, once he got to his character, I'll bring that point up now. Though, I've complained before in other episodes that there's characters that we come across in another series that are just too, in my opinion, my humble opinion, that are just too innately talented. Paul from Dune comes mm-hmm. to mind. I complained about that a lot on Dune. Characters that become too proficient or unrealistically proficient at certain things, often with, you know, combat or magic use in general, but we don't really get to see the entire journey. It just, it kind of happens. Sometimes we get, like, a little bit of a narrative montage, and then, boom, we're there. With Tao, none of that happens. Every (laughs) bloody step of his path to the top we get in detail, loving detail. Um, Not just about what he does, but as you were talking earlier, Drew, about what he thinks, how he's feeling, and how each obstacle including his own limitations as obstacles are defeated mentally as well as physically. You know, despite the fact that it still hasn't been a particularly long time in world, I have no problem believing that Tau Solaris is the best of those that we've met so far in terms of swordplay, regardless of length of experience, you know? So Yeah, there's there's definitely an element of like... Uh, uh, dang it, I can't remember the name, the term for the kind of anime... Like the the like power up progression like a progression story, you know where, yeah. where there's like it, it spends a lot of time. Like I've been I've been watching My Hero Academia recently, you know, and and that's another one that spends a a lot of time on the training, and it starts off with a character who's normal and and lesser in in a lot of ways, and his like struggle to work harder than the people who are more talented than him you know and, and ultimately grow in his power grow in his skill and, and I, I, it's killing me i can't remember the name of this kind of shonen shonen anime oh sure yeah yeah i don't know yeah. if that's the term you're looking for but i've heard I, of it I, I think that's what it is uh, <laughs> our listeners so could yell right at now. me yeah our, our <laughs> listeners could yell at me uh if i got that wrong but but yeah there's there's a lot of that um that like power progression being shown of like this is not a guy who just starts off as the most talented incredible badass in the world he has to really really work for it I'm so and glad. I think that ties that that ties back to a lot of readers I think that readers can connect to that cuz a lot of people you know statistically speaking a lot of people are average you know and yeah and a, a lot of people who are going to be, you know, reading this book aren't, you know, aren't going to be the kind of people who, like, you know, the first time they stepped foot on a baseball field, they were like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be playing in the MLB one day. You know, like that kind of thing. Uh, people have to work hard in real life to achieve their goals. And so we see Tao, you know, forced to go through that. And, and you know, that's that does alleviate a little bit of that you know the necessity of showing all of the training stuff even if it if it was a little bit of a drag for me yeah <laughs> uh sure but 
but we'll we'll get we'll get more into that with uh with Tao's character. I'm, I'm super glad character you reasons. Up anime, and I I didn't write this down in when I was organizing my notes, but I have it on my phone here. And because you brought up anime, I'm just gonna say it. I wrote down and I said, "Why am I hearing Dragon Ball Z music?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that so many times. I heard like the Vegeta versus Frieza theme when when he was approaching Odalai at the end. You know, I was like, oh god, here we go. Or when he's walking out to face Kellen in the Queen's uh, Queen's melee. There, I was like, oh, this is it. This is it. Did have that whole build up one on one. Everything stops. Let's power up. I I heard the Bruce Falconer music in my head <laughs> as I was reading those scenes. It was so yeah. Good. Like, look, I see people in on Reddit, Facebook, you know. Twitter all time being like, oh, they shouldn't make the Wheel of Time a, a live action. They should make it an anime. Oh, they shouldn't do live action for Stormlight Crime. They should make it an anime. I see that for every single fantasy series. Right. They should make an anime. This is an anime. <laughs> <laughs> Drew, 2021. Rage of Dragons, anime. Yeah. Make it happen. <laughs> but uh, but I, I did want to talk a little bit about the world building because I think okay. that was okay. the strongest part of the book for me. Uh, it's not as detailed as you know somebody like uh, Robert Jordan or George R. R. Martin uh, or, or Brandon Sanderson. There isn't like a really hard magic system, but it is on the harder side. The world building isn't as nitty gritty detailed as the Wheel of Time or whatever, but it is a little more on the detailed side like he's he's striking a really good balance of making his world and his magic vivid without getting like really into the weeds and leaving room for <laughs> sword fights uh, <laughs> and and I just I liked the I liked the world that he built here you know it was it, it's cool geography it's unique geography and a unique ge geopolitical like situation where uh, you know you have a lot of situations like oh well you know the the neighbors the the savages over on the other side of the border they're the bad guys you know they're they're invading they're raiding whatever but here it's you know it's uh, complicated because of the like diaspora of the Omehi people in the prologue and we have this growing knowledge of the not-so-great things the Omehi are doing to maintain their uh, their hold on, on this part of the continent. And, yeah, like, that was the strongest part of it for me, was, was how he took a, a, a peninsula and created a story out of that peninsula. Instead of writing a story and then placing it somewhere. Mm, yeah i agree i um i really like the world building and i like how it's unapologetic it's not a traditional fantasy world right it's not you know medieval europe setting this is inspired by africa and um evan winter's ancestral home right and right. it's it just unapologetically drops you into that it doesn't take time to explain it and i think that adds to the mystery right like i am interested in learning more about the goddess i don't know enough about her to really see what's going on currently but there's promise that this is going to happen later same thing with the saw priests and um the gifts of the hideni we don't know what they are like we heard they're lost and now they might be back so i think there's a lot yeah. of room to grow here oh yeah 
Yeah, Drew knows what kind of reader I am when it comes to deeper lore that we're given hints towards. <laughs> oh my goodness. In, in fact, you know, like the world building, going back to that, it was it was fantastic. I, I This world felt real. It felt tangible. It was in front of me, even though it was just in the hands of my e-reader here. I did like that. The world building was great. But because of the world building being great, a small part of me was a little let down by the very, very straightforward, simple progression of the narrative that had that one goal, achieved that one goal, may or may not have achieved that one goal, and then was just sort of tied up. I, I really wanted to dig, or at least get some more hints, and maybe we got some hints, and I'm just, you know, it, it, they went completely over my head. But I did want more of that metaphysical stuff. I did want more of the deeper lore, and we didn't get as much as that as I wanted. So, yeah, like, kind of on the on that same topic, this is a, you know, we just finished reading uh, Robert Jackson Bennett's Divine Cities trilogy. And, you know, that's another series with phenomenal world building. Yes. But the way he goes about that world building is very different from Evan Winter here. Winter doesn't spend a whole lot of time trying to set up mysteries or misdirect you the way Bennett does or the way Brandon Sanderson does. Like, where Sanderson in, in the Cosmere, he'll give you information, but... That famous quote, there's always another secret. I didn't get the impression from this that Evan Winter has another secret and another secret behind that and another secret behind that. Like, I find myself reading a scene where we're getting a lore drop, which, by the way, was also one of my, like, eh, didn't love it so much. A lot of big, just big, hefty info dumps. Uh, <laughs> but, like, I'd be reading that and thinking, all right, where's the catch here? Where's the twist? Where are they lying? Where's the truth that I can figure out? And then I'd come out of it and be like, oh no, uh, that, that was just the truth. <laughs> like, that was just straightforward. You yep. know? Like, <laughs> it looks like so, it smells like it, and it is it. Yeah. Yeah. Then we get to the end of the book, you're like, oh, yeah, no, that was it. <laughs> so I've yeah. read the sequel, Fires of Vengeance, and I'm assuming you guys haven't since you just you know, mm -hmm. finished the books a couple of days ago. So I will say there is more mystery. Um, to this there like the story we're hearing isn't the full story oh sure yeah but it's not it is not as mis mysterious as the cosmere i'd say it's yeah. levels below that but there is still some mystery some things that you guys didn't know or you couldn't have known uh for me just sure. this book okay yeah okay and, and like I, yeah. I was more talking just in the context of this first book where i'm used to reading fantasy novels that give you lore information at the beginning and then subvert it at the end. And mm -hmm. here the only, like, I guess the only real subversion was the, like, what happens with, with like, entreating the dragons. But we already kind of knew that from the prologue. You right. know, with, with the queen. And so I was like, I, I couldn't quite tell if that was supposed to be a surprise or if or if, you know, he expected readers would pick up on that in the prologue. I don't know. But, but yeah, like, it was, it was, as Rob said, it was definitely a more straightforward kind of story. It didn't rest on a mystery to drive tension. It rested on, this one dude is really, really angry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, this is, I guess this is a, a, a segue into just the main complaint, I suppose, if I had about this book. It's, and it is the, the very derivative plot, you know, like, 
dragons. Wow, we haven't have enough of those in the fantasy landscape already. Oh wait, your main character is a is a young man. Actually, yeah, actually, that might actually get a pass. You know, most new fantasy protagonists seem to be young female street urchins nowadays. I'll give him a pass for this. <laughs> oh, he has ambitions to join the military. Oh, he's already got basic swordplay skills. <gasps> no, his father was murdered. And in a world where he's beaten down and dismissed as lowborn, he sets out to become a blade master and exact revenge on someone very specific. Ladies oh my and goodness! The oh my goodness! What did you say, Drew? Sorry, I kind of talked over you there. Just that's that's the hero's journey. Yes. Like, that, the, yeah, I, I just, I'm sitting. Yet another beat of, for beat, uh, another the, face of the hero with a thousand faces. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, he, like Zuri. The one whom Tao thinks, well, at least we're led to in, you know, at first believe, the one who Tao thinks would never take him seriously. Within five pages of meeting her, she's, like, confessing her feelings to him, and she's kissing him. Like, I groaned out loud. I was like, oh, God. This is like the books that I tried writing when I was ten years old, only the writer is way better. You know? <laughs> the writer is clearly a lot better writer than I am. The only thing that was missing for me, I just, I, I kept, I kept expecting revelation again, going back to the hero's journey. <gasps> Tao is not, in fact, Arin's son. Or that Arin himself is maybe of hidden noble birth, in that, oh my god, Tao is secretly of some noble lineage. Like, I was relieved when we didn't get that. I was physically relieved when we didn't get that. I was like, okay. Yeah. Alright. There's my, there's the most of my complaints for today, right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, my, yeah, my last real, like, style note was just the, the, the nature of his of his info dumps, uh, there were a couple of points that really stood out to me where I was like, I was like, this, this just didn't belong here. Like, like I remember the, the scene when the queen is arriving to the keep in Karim, like near the beginning. And there's this long, long description about, you know, like the, the soldiers and everything. And, and then he's talking about like how beautiful the queen is and stuff. And then there's just like a couple of random sentences in the middle of that, uh, talking about something totally different, like history of his father, and then it's back to talking about the queen. And I'm like, where did that come from? Yeah. And then, and then when he asks Zuri about uh, enervating, and she's like, and she goes on a two chapter or two sub chapter lesson about the entire history of the world, and he's like, I already know this, and she's like, Shh, I'm talking. He's like, I already know. Shh, I'm talking. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, like that. That was just very heavy-handed, and you know, the that uh that old you know TV trope that, as you know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, so that, that was kind of my last my last style point. I know I was pretty harsh uh, on on the writing in this book, um, and and. It, look, Evan Winter's not getting any favors from us that we're reading this after reading The Divine Cities, which was absolutely brilliant, and now we're recording this in between our two episodes on A Desolation Called Peace by Arcady Martin, who is one of the better prose stylists of the modern era, and uh, unfortunately Evan Winter is, is not on that level. <laughs> well, yeah, this is, uh, like you said so, before, this is originally a self-published book, you know, I yeah. with an editor, with, with a lot of the experience... And, and and team that you know both of those other writers would have had hopefully you know, I think this could have been a better book I did, I'm not gonna say I you know what I will say I didn't like it as a whole but there are still very very valuable things to be found in this book and I do not regret the fact that we spent the time reading it yeah and and 
while there is, you know, that unfortunate circumstance of its timing in our schedule, it is a very different kind of book from what we've been reading. And that is, in and of itself, refreshing. We're not reading, like, A Desolation Called Peace, spoilers, is not full of action scene after action scene after action scene. You'll hear me (laughs) complaining about that. I promise. (laughs) Guys, Rage of Dragons has too much action. It do- I, I, and I know, oh, I hear it right now. Oh my god, Rob hates politics, though. He's always complaining about the lack of action. But guess what? I can also think that a particular meal needs a bit of salt without dumping the entire fucking box <laughs> on my plate. I don't think we managed to go ten pages as much, like through this book without a battle or a sparring session happening. This book is 80% fighting. Choke. <laughs> it was just a little... It was way too much. It was yeah. it was swordplay porn, and hey, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's like, mean, I'm sure there's lots of people who would love to read that. I'm looking for a little more now, and it fell a little short in those areas. You're welcome, Rob. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I've corrupted you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have. You really have. It's in a good way, though. Is it corrupted though? You've enriched me, Drew. There's a bit of yeah, yeah. There you go. Today. But yeah, before we move on to, to characters, I wanted to ask Alex, like, so how did you like find uh, Rage of Dragons, and and what were your initial impressions? Because you're getting a lot of our initial impressions. Oh yeah. So I don't remember how I found it. I just I heard about it on Twitter and on our fantasy, um, and I was looking for a different book to read. So I found it. And I thought, oh, this is probably going to be good for the podcast. And mm-hmm. when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it was good for the podcast, and when I read it, I loved it. I thought the action was incredible. I just thought the the pacing was great, and I read through it like two three days, just like you guys. Um, except I was doing a sub internship for medical school. If you guys don't know what that is, that's working like twelve hour days, six yeah, days yeah. a week. <laughs> so yeah. I was giving up a lot of sleep for this. I thought that it was incredible one of my favorite books that i read um last year and i was nice. in a yeah i was in a place where i was reading a lot of fast action i thought that this was one of the better fast action books that we oh had. my god i will say that i'll yeah. agree with that yeah have you have you read cradle by any chance i have not will will white um yeah. i i've just heard a lot of people compare this to cradle in terms of like that that same sort of progression uh, story arc and lots of action and mm-hmm. uh, that like more more like the popcorn like fun fun fantasy not not the kind of thing that you're gonna have to sit down and ponder you know right yeah so I don't want to end our style points on complaints I'm gonna I'm gonna compliment I'm gonna give a compliment okay I'm gonna do that um as a wordsmith there were moments of brilliance their their battle cries are about as epic as you can ask for an epic fantasy. I think um, some of Tao's more passionate moments, like in his greatest anger in, in these battles, are just spectacular. There was a quote that I wrote down here: "Born in Umlaba, but bred in Isihogo." I was, ooh, that was a powerful line. There are moments like that throughout here, and you can tell that this guy enjoys what he's doing. When I'm reading this book, I'm not reading an author who's just trying to throw words on a page and make some money. It, he, you can tell that perhaps because of the amount of action in this book you can tell that it was fun to write and that winter does enjoy writing and so i have to give it to him at least as a genuine author he's not uh mm-hmm. he's not it doesn't feel forced 
it feels earned. It feels worked for. Yeah. So yeah, uh, just they a little were definitely. Oh. Just a little background about when he wrote this. He saved up money and took a year off work. Said, "I'm going to write a book," and he did. So he definitely enjoyed this. This was like a lifetime goal for him, and it turned out well. Obviously, getting that four book deal. Yeah. Wow. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good for him. Hell yes. Damn, maybe that's what I need to do. Just quit my job for a year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hey, I'm kind of like in the middle that's of that totally now. gonna guaranteed gonna work out the same way. I'm yes. absolutely gonna get absolutely. a four book deal. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing can go wrong. <laughs> I'm kind of in the middle of the same thing right now, except you know, the whole writing a book thing kind of turned halfway through into going back to school. But Yeah. Yeah. Alright. Characters. Anything yeah, else with style before we dive into Tau Solaris? Let's let's talk about Tau. Okay. Who wants to start us off? Who's got the most uh, burning opinions? I did not like him. No way. <laughs> I could no, not I? stand him. He's an idiot. <laughs> okay. Okay. This, so this is like this was probably my biggest issue with the book is that I didn't like either of the two main characters. I didn't like Tau and I didn't like Zuri. And mm. Tau was just so frustrating. And, and and on top of that, it felt like he would he would put himself in these situations where he's being obstinate and, and obnoxious and not listening to anybody around him. And then just on a dime, turn around and be like, oh no, you're right, sorry. Actually, we're going to do that. And then two chapters later, he's doing the same thing again. And then turn on a dime. And I'm like... <sighs> <laughs> like, what are you doing, man? What are yeah. you doing to me? <laughs> yeah. So he he definitely was was really frustrating. Um, I I liked the characters around him a lot more. I liked Jayed. I liked basically everybody in the scale. Mm-hmm. But I was like, man, I'd I'd so much rather be in like Hadith's head than Tao's. Yeah, Hadith is a more traditional smart. Uh, fantasy protagonist. <laughs> I'd rather be in uh, Ud- Uduak, Uruak. I can't remember if it's a D or an R every single time. It's, Uduak, it's right? A D. Uduak. Yeah, Uduak. Yeah, Uduak. Yeah, I would. I would much. I would be in his yeah, head before I'd be in Tao's head. He was really interesting too. Yeah, he was like, I so fascinating. He a... by, by sheer economy of words, I think on a per word basis, he was the one I was most interested in. Yeah, yeah, and so Tao was just like. <sighs> He exhausted me. <laughs> so I, I can empathize with that. One of the worst things about Tao is, you know, he trusts people. Like, he trusts Zuri. He trusts Jayad. But when Zuri and Jayad both tell him, like, hey, Kellen's a good dude. He is not mm-hmm. what you think he is. He still just doesn't believe them for some reason. Like, yeah, he's on. like, yeah. He's like, oh, you, you both think he's okay? Well, go to hell. Like, <laughs> oh, no, that doesn't fit into my subjective worldview. You <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to try and say that he's a bad person, obviously. I just don't really like him. He's arrogant. He's full of himself. And it's not to say he thinks he's invincible. I mean, there's many times when he fears for his own life, or he doubts yep. his ability, or he, he he rails against his limitations. But he believes everything that he believes so fiercely that there is no room for anything else. He is so single-minded, he's so focused on his goals, that he's got tunnel vision, and he is unable to see the world around him. Mm-hmm. In any way. So. I think one benefit of that is his view on lessers and nobles. That's something I think is good that he does. Uh, The rest, his focus on getting his revenge, 
not not so great but his views that lessers are not being as treated as they should that's a good like a good Love way to yes. have that motivation yeah he he did work as a vehicle for social commentary um i think you're culminating in that moment uh, after he saves the queen in her chambers and uh and her gifted vizier keeps calling him lesser and he's just like do not ever call me lesser again like <laughs> you know the, it, especially right after he has just killed a literal superman like <laughs> yeah. yeah um but although okay just reminded me. So, he kills a literal Superman, right? He's somehow fighting this guy, dual-wielding swords, with three broken fingers and broken ribs. I'm like, no, the human body does not work that way. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, the guy's skin is, like, tough as stone. You can't stab through it with three of your fingers broken. Like, look, I've, I've played hockey. I've broken one finger. And taking a shot, like, taking a slap shot... Uh, on the hockey rink with one broken finger excruciating like dropped my stick pain like there's no way you could you can grip a sword with three broken fingers much less stab somebody i was Drew like Mc... <laughs> i'm so you're, glad you're not you training in the words. underworld every night that's you're not getting killed well, but, but no, so, no. and and that's where that's where the what came into play was like tau kept having these situations where he's like he should be crippled. By all rights, he should be crippled. And yet he's pulling off these incredible feats of military prowess. I'm like, okay, there is something magical, special about him. But then, no, it takes him months to heal his broken wrist. And and it takes him, you know, weeks to recover from, you know, his... And, and he had so many head injuries. That was another thing. I'm like, look, I've had four concussions. It has changed me as a person. <laughs> like, yeah. And... And, and then, and so I was waiting for there to be some magical reason for why he's able to do these things. And then, but, but if there had been a magical reason, it would have undercut the narrative purpose of the, like, lesser versus noble dynamic that Tao was embodying. And I'm like, I, I feel like Winter kind of wrote himself into a corner with that, where it's like, I need to have ever more insane fight scenes. But I can't make my hero magical because that'll, you know, undermine my social commentary. And and he ended up just sitting on like, well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write it anyway. He's gonna fight injured. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad to hear you say this because I feel like I am starting to corrupt you in return because I have a lot of these same complaints about just realism of combat. And like you, in that moment when he had the three broken fingers, I was thinking, wait, that sword hand just has a thumb and a forefinger gripping it. How is he slashing through what is basically steel skin? How is he even meeting blade to blade with that? These kinds of things, I have three or four of these to still go on with later when we get into our miscellaneous points. I will, I'm still full of these today. I'm just, these little realistic, or I should say lack of realism things, it's just like, come on. We, like, and that's why I'm like, no, this is an anime. Yeah, there you go. There you go. It, straight up, like, I, it just reminds me of My Hero Academia, where, like, yeah, very, very minor early season spoilers. Like, the main character is, like, constantly, like, breaking his arms and his hands and has to, like, train through it. And I'm like, this... Fall stop reminds me of my hero academia. <laughs> yeah. I've said everything I want to say about Tao 
for this book. We uh, may do like, the other well. book in the future. Uh, yeah, but... Alex, do you have any any more on tap? Uh, I just think his relationships are interesting. We're probably going to talk about this more when we get to the other characters, but yeah. um, I liked his relationship with Dryad a lot. The rest of the scale, like Rob said, I think they're great characters, um, and we'll get into that later, but his relationship with Zuri does feel a little rushed. It's just yeah. so fast. Um, but, I mean, it, it's probably just the teenage love, you know, they're... I don't know, like 16, 17. So things happen fast. So, yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking about Zuri, you know, shall we move on to her? Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I wanted her to live. Same. Not because I liked her as a character, but because I, the moment they had sex, I was like, oh, he totally got her pregnant, and this is going to cause massive problems down the line. <laughs> and then she died and I was like dang it I wanted there to be like we we had this almost like narrative Chekhov's gun about like the the mixed cast children and then and there's all of this social um like structure around like she's a gifted he's a lesser this is so awful that he's like touching her in the in the city square that these these nobles are ready to kill him for it you know, and and here he is sleeping with her, and and makes a big deal at the beginning scene. This is forbidden. I was like, okay, I want there to be consequences. <laughs> I thought that scene was going to be glossed over when she at the end oh, of yeah, that one I, chapter she led him away into the, to the bath, and I was like, okay, this is all right. So we're going to continue on with the next morning, and I saw the next chapter was nope. called Forbidden, and I went, oh oh. And then yeah, and then we got to see her give him a hand job. There was a particularly um, off-putting usage of the word sheathed, I think, that really, oh, really gosh. got to me there. <laughs> look, look, I I actually, I thought that was a really smart use of that word, because this is a guy oh, who's... Oh, smart, too. It was just, I should like, say off-putting. Unexpected. <laughs> Unconventional. <laughs> Another unword that I don't even know. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, I wanted Zuri to live. I wanted there to be more, more to their relationship than just like teenage love, and then she's tragically killed early. Like that was just so straightforward. I wanted there to be more consequences to their relationship. I wanted there to be something in the second book with like, oh, you know, maybe we're ten years down the road and they have a daughter and she's tested and she's a gifted but there's some i don't know like some weird thing going on because she's you know her father was a lesser like i, I don't know but I have, yeah, a, I, I, I have two questions one is specifically about this would you have felt that we missed a check off gun if she didn't die when we have all of these talks about how intruders calling dragons they always die and zuri is very strong she's gonna call dragons eventually I think, mm. I think either way we're set up for disappointment, right? Either they have the sex and maybe have a baby down the line, or they're talking about the dragon and how entreaters always die. We know she's going to call well, one. So I feel like we already missed that because she didn't die from calling the dragon. She was actually killed by the dragon. She didn't have the demon death. That's how, that's how they, they die. The people who call the dragons. The shield breaks down and... Either yeah, and the then, demons or the dragon 
kills them. Oh, it, see, I I didn't get it from from the previous things that the dragon ever killed them. That it was it was always the shroud fell and they got killed by the demon. But how do you explain like the boiling skin and like the skin sloughing off and the burns and stuff like that on the victims of the demon death as well? Like oh, I I noticed that the demon death had burns on, in a lot of cases, and I was like, what? The ones who called dragons assumed, supposedly. I assume that was part of the like the underworld curse because like the Hedeni are also described as having like their skin like sloughing off and so and like part of the reason the Hedeni have the skin sloughing off is because they fight in that cursed land where the dragons yeah. are sending their curse and uh-huh. um, if you remember in the scene where Tao is in the underworld and Zuri's calling the dragon the dragon is there the dragon right. is in the demon world. Yes. So the demon death yeah. and the dragon death, I think, could be the same thing in those cases. Uh, sure, it, yeah. But it, to me, it was just because, like, she was actually killed in the real world after surviving, like, you know, Tao going in to save her. And that's what pissed mm-hmm. me off. And then, and then the queen steps in and saves her again. And then she gets actually, like, burned by the dragon in, in the real world. She went back in. No, she did, but she the the dragon gets released and like is trying to kill everybody in the scale, and then it sees her, and it like breathes fire on her. Like she didn't die from inside the world; she got like actually lit on fire. <laughs> okay. Morbid as it is, no, she was incinerated. She was gone yeah. like entirely. Her body wasn't even there anymore in the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, because I just remember thinking, like, it was a totally different description from, for instance, like, the the entreater we saw at Daba, who, like, had the demon death, and the dragon was nowhere around. The dragon was, like, you know, off flying, you know. And then, and then this one, it was, like, no, in the real world, it, like, turned around and just... Vaporized her. Blasted her. <laughs> oh, God, blasted. <laughs> Fired, yeah. Um, but no, so so in terms of the Chekhov's gun thing there, like, I see what you're saying, and, and I think you do have a, a, a point, but I I didn't feel like it was too much of a Chekhov's gun even as it was executed. Okay. To me, the Chekhov's gun was more uh, Tau learning to go into Isihogo and fight demons there. Hmm. Absolutely, Chekhov's gun for me. Yeah. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I saw that coming as soon as we learned that that's, that's what could happen. I was like, "Oh, okay, write it down. That's gonna happen." <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, okay. So, you said you had one other question. Yeah, this is about the uh, caste system. Lesser's nobles gifted. How do you guys think that works? Like after reading this book, how do you think it works? I have a better idea from reading the second, but I just want to hear what your guys' opinions are. How the caste system the works? Yeah. Like on a societal level, on day-to-day operations, or do you mean like how it works in carrying the narrative? Like, what do you mean? Um, yeah, narratively. Narratively, but also just like in world, how is someone greater noble, lesser noble, lesser? Well, so uh, this is. This is another one of those kind of instances where I think he wrote himself into a bit of a corner where he has this, uh, you know, theme, obviously, of, like, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard, you know, that kind of thing. And and you can ultimately beat even talent who does work hard if you just work harder. And, and the only reason that that 
storyline, that through line works is because there's like real physical differences between the casts mm-hmm. where just period the nobles are bigger, stronger, faster, you know, and and so like they're they're at least seems to me in from the knowledge I was given in this book there's a good reason why these people are the nobles and these other people are the commoners you know like these people have magic in their blood and can become enraged and 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 do all of this incredible stuff that normal people just plain can't so of course they're going to be higher on the totem pole and then there's this like social revolution theme to the book of like oh well actually we're all equal but you're manifestly not equal in this world and and i think that's mm, some dangerous ground that winter is treading yeah i agree with you when i read this i didn't get that at all i um I was reading about their diet and i heard tao say oh he gets beat like once to twice a year and all of this other stuff and he he's working in the field the nobles are you know in their castles and when i was reading it i didn't get the magic in the blood um i got more the nobles are bigger because they have better nutrition they get that's what i was gonna say i was gonna say when drew was talking i was like it's not a nutritional thing but then Uh, the magic mm. i was like oh okay yeah yeah so that's one thing that disappointed me just like drew was saying Uh, he wrote himself into this and it's not what I thought was going to happen. Um, also, I'd be interested to see what you guys think if you ever read the rest of the series, um, what you think of that cast system after Fires of Vengeance. Yeah, I, I assume that that storyline goes forward. Yes. Yeah. We yeah. Like I myself hadn't just... even considered it. I'll admit it, just because I hadn't. I don't think I had enough. I didn't think I had enough context, you know, to even. Form. I don't know, like it. It kind of reminded me a little bit of. Um, oh, actually, that's a spoiler. Never mind. Um, Regarding, it reminded me of something from a, a, a book series by Brandon Sanderson. Yeah. Where oh yeah, I mean, where I, was, like, I almost said it four times already. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Um. And I don't know that that feels a little like a little squicky to me uh, in in this day and age, especially you know where where there's so much going on, uh, you know with um, race relations and social justice and and there's a lot of uh, I don't know, there's a lot of turmoil uh, about about appearance versus substance and this is I, I, I kind of feel like it's pushing the wrong message you? You know, on, on that count hmm I don't think I agree like, with that. But I mean, I didn't look in. I haven't really considered it fully. Yeah, like... I need to look, I need to give another read. I, I consider... You know, we've read a few different series on the show um, with cast systems. And a couple of them ultimately came down to... Like, oh no, these cast systems were deserved because these people are just plain magically better than these other people. And and that like uh, uh, I don't love that. 
And then I compare something to like, you know, the Acts of Cain, where there's a caste system, but it's based on something very, very different. And we see those those preconceptions broken down over the course of the series. You know, I always say there are reasons for the caste system, and it's not as clear-cut. It's just these people are magically better. Um, but it is not, you know, what I expected when I was reading this. I wasn't expecting everyone to be equal and there's mm. like an in-world reason, you know, like nutrition, that the casts are different, but it's not that. There's there's a magical reason, and it's not exactly just these people are magically better. Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> I will say just to, to wrap up my thought on this, you know, um, and it was actually my last style point on my phone. I just hadn't really written down written it down on my uh, on my computer here. But the you know the themes of of caste, of blood, of cl- of class and oppression. I'm getting really really tired of these themes in fantasy nowadays. <laughs> and I want to make this very clear. I was hesitant to bring this up because I don't want anyone to confuse my fatigue over these themes <clears throat> in modern fantasy as like an opposition to any of these ideas. But for example, in in chapter Jayad Am, you won't help people if you don't know your place. And Tao says, I didn't, I don't think I like the place they've set for me. It's based on what you are. Then uh, they don't know what I am, Tao said. And a few pages later, we have two hands, two legs, one heart, one mind. Nobles shared more with lessers than they didn't. They were more akin to Tao than they weren't, and to say different was to speak lies. Tao's limits were not decided by his birth or nature, but by the bounds of his determination and the extent of his efforts. That was what Tao believed. Yeah, and then the story goes on to say, oh, but actually, no, his limits are defined by his birth. (laughs) So far, coming out of book one, there may be more that we learn later, Drew. Uh, (laughs) You know, but, like, I'm just, I'm tired of, regardless as to what statement is even being made, I'm just tired of the theme. Yeah, I mean, that's that's fair. I, I feel like there are a lot of people who are also tired of, uh, ooh. Uh, my, my beer is uh, I'm drinking a sour beer today and, and my stomach was just rumbling uh, but no, I think there are a lot of people out there who are, are similarly tired of uh, of some of these themes theme fatigue and, is what I'm going to call it for today yeah, like, and look I know there are a lot of people who read fantasy to escape from real life and seeing the Ew. things that they're struggling with in real life reflected in their fantasy can get wearying oh. Oh, I now, I struggle with a lot of that stuff, but for me personally, I think one of the greatest things about fantasy and science fiction is the ability for authors to tackle real-world problems and situations from a, a more removed perspective and engage with them in a, a a less fraught manner. Yeah, but I totally can understand how how readers you know just get tired of it. There is an audience. There absolutely is an audience. Um, I'm just not part of that audience. I don't think that it's written <laughs> specifically for. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. okay. So we have Tao. We have Zuri. I didn't want to say her name. It's going to make me disappointed. I still have one. You know, one more thing about Zuri. That, okay. <laughs> she was fascinating to me. Like when she was just freely revealing so many secrets about the gifted because she just trusts Tao. I knew I was on her side right there. I was on her side to the righteous end. And I feel like we as readers were just a little cheated, honestly. I feel like we deserved more Zuri. And she deserved more Tao. And having her go out in a sacrifice play like that 
after the queen had already saved her. As you said, Drew, that was frustrating. And I, like, I wasn't really invested in her character as a person. I just feel like I was cheated out of the opportunity to be invested in her later. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Oh, totally. And the moment she told Tao, re- leading up to the final battle there, I love you. She finally said it. And I was like, well, okay, rest in peace. <laughs> Rip. <laughs> Rip. Zuri. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm done with Zuri now. Uh, da, 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 da. I want to talk about the scale. I want to just collectively okay. the guys okay. in in Scale Giant because uh, this was to me the best character work he did here, and uh, and he he really did a good job of getting that that camaraderie, that brothers in arms kind of thing, you know, that you get in something like the Black Company, uh, the the in jokes the the way the characters like adapt their roles like if you if you look at some of the early scenes with them and then compare the way you know uh yaw or or hadith or you know whoever the way they talk versus the way they're talking by the end of the book they over the course of that span they fall into certain like patterns of speech that weren't necessarily there at the beginning but as they grew more comfortable with each other they adopted their roles as a team and i i thought that was really clever that was that was uh, some of the best writing he did in this book interesting yeah, yeah. i really like how distinct the whole scale is right it's a band of warrior brothers but each character feels like they have their own personality, even though we only get a couple pages of time with them, you know, overall. Like, Hadith mm-hmm. is definitely a thinker, um, revolutionary, Udak is a berserker, Themba is a cynic. Like, you feel all mm-hmm. of these characters are different. It's great. Yeah, yeah. In that way, you can tell who's talking without even seeing the name. Mm-hmm. And I think that was that's a, that's a mark in Winter's favor. You know, he's... He, he can make a character feel like a character and not like a robot. Or not the like old, a, uh, a programmed response. What's that? Yeah, I was going to say the old uh, Hemingway approach. Develop your character drunk so well sober? that... Oh. No, develop your character so well you don't have to use speaker tags. Oh, yeah. Even though I hate that. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. Don't, again, right yeah, drunk, edit sober Ernest, was the only bit of Hemingway's Ernest advice Hemingway is notorious for not using speaker tags. Like you, you, uh, you'll go pages. Go read the sun also rises. Pages without a speaker tag, and you'll have like a, a six way uh, conversation. No speaker tags. You're like, I'm sorry, your characters are not well developed enough for me to really get this. <laughs> dang, dang, that's disappointing. Hemingway gets pushed back a little farther. All right, um, I'm not a fan. <laughs> Kellen, I really want to talk about Kellen. Yeah, go for it. I actually don't have much about him best character in this book for me like I love this guy's entire involvement with this book yeah I hated him along with Tao to begin with I hated him the more and more that Tao hated him as well when it was revealed that he was an initiate of the he was in Lovu right third cycle in Lovu I wanted his steaming guts on a platter when it was revealed that he was considered the best, the spot that we as readers have already reserved for our protagonist. But then we got the first hints of his true character, and I was floored. Not by the twist of it, not that it was unexpected, but by the fact that that Winter chose to do it. Every other villain 
or or like oppressionist theme in this book feels kind of mustache twirlingly evil at points. Yeah, I was so on board for this redeemable antagonist. I cannot get over how brilliant of a choice it was on Winter's part to depict that confrontation with Tao from Kellen's point of view mm-hmm. during the Queen's melee. At least at first, the internal conflict inside Kellen, his his own heartbreak, his shame, and his regret. We get to see our protagonist. We get to see Tao through different eyes. Finally, different eyes. Powerful, you know, more powerful than we dared to hope, but also vengeful, fearful, hateful, animalistic. Like this scene was just awesome. He wanted to tell Tao he was sorry and that it wasn't fair. And for the rest of the book, because of those words, or maybe because it made me experience Kellen differently from that on, or read Kellen differently from then on. It made him my favorite character in this entire book. He and he and Arin, you know, those were probably my favorites. I loved Kellen. Really? Wow. Okay. I liked, uh, this is something more style was, um, but the change in POV, it's very seldom that we get a different character's point of view, but I think it's so impactful. Like Rob is saying, when we see what Kellen is thinking about Tao, it changed my whole perspective on the character the first time I read it. Um, but the second yeah. time through, I see a lot more hints that Kellen is a good person before we even get to that scene. Like rereading the scene where he duels are in I see how he's trying to save him he says he refuses oh, to duel at first and then he cuts off the arm and like this is it I, I can't do anything else like the seeds are there from the beginning to see that he's a good character yeah I have to go read that again now well not now but maybe when we wrap up yeah <laughs> yeah yeah alright any other characters that we want to discuss before we head into our miscellaneous points uh we could discuss Jad real quick. I thought he was super interesting, right? He is also a revolutionary. He views society in a different way, but not the same way that, say, Tao and Hadith do, where they think that lessers and nobles should be equal. He views that lessers should be better treated and there should be a third class. He's trying to start a middle mm-hmm. class, essentially. And I think it's interesting uh, that he's only able to go this far, but his students are able to go further with that um, political view, that, you know, societal viewpoint. Yeah, I, I liked Jayad a lot because he he held a unique spot in the book. Not just in his, you know, his mentor role, but like you said, in his, uh, like, political stance, he's the only one who thinks the way he does. We see lots of people who think the way Tao does about lessers. We see lots of people who think the way Odili does about nobles. You know, but even though the queen also wants peace, she, at least we're not given any indication that she also views the caste system the same way that Jayet does. And so I liked that he kind of stood out on his own island. Yeah, I mean, I will say that I didn't know how much I liked Jayad until he died. And somehow I didn't see it coming. It kind of seems like, yeah, of course this guy would die if I take a step back and think about how these kinds of stories work out. Yeah. How was I, how and why was I surprised that he died? But when it happened, I was shocked and I was kind of heartbroken. And I went, I had to actually take that inner look and go, oh, wow, you really did like this character, didn't you, Rob? You just didn't realize it. Until he was gone, you know. 
kind of sucks. I mean, kind of sucks. Really sucks. So a- ancillary to him dying, I really hope that like, you know, in in future books, the uh, oh, what was her name? Dasso. Dasso. Oh yes. Yeah. She, Come she on. better. She better make okay. another appearance. I feel like that's uh, that was way oh, too. I- Way too I, kinda, up. Oh, I can't oh, yeah. say that one name just because even that one name would be a spoiler. Damn it. Oh well. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but that's that's all I had about uh, characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you guys okay. want to head into miscellaneous stuff. Cool. Random miscellaneous points. I can get a, I have actually a lot of those. Some nitpicks here. Um, this is a, this may be my dumbest aesthetic point to make today. I promise it is dumb. But, you know one thing I cannot stand in fantasy books? The introductory, nonsensical, especially in context, assuming our characters know these kinds of things already, totally for the benefit of the reader, only basic questions about history and lore. Drew, you were talking about lore dumps. This goes hand in hand with that. The most egregious of these moments for me was in chapter... It was the chapter called Air. And this wasn't an info dump, but it was... set. It was, it was a lot like that because it sets the reader up to question something in a way that I thought was not really organic. When there's this abandoned boat that is spotted, and I have the quote here, waves drove the abandoned ship against the group of rocks and it was dashed to pieces. Jabari shook his head. How did we do it? Do what, Nkosi? said Aaron, using the petty nobles honorific as he scanned the sinking wreckage. Cross it, Jabari said. No ship we make now can sail more than a few hundred strides from shore. How did we even cross all of it? And Aaron even calls him out on it. Aaron's like, and Kosi, perhaps we should be saving the deep thinking for your tutors. You know. In in film theory, at least in the classes I took in college, there's this notion of something that I, th- I want to say was Alfred Hitchcock made this famous, but I don't quote me on, the, on Alfred Hitchcock there. It's called the proscribed reaction. You see it all the time in movies and in TV shows and in music videos. or You don't even know you're seeing it. This is the moment where something dramatic happens, whether it be funny or scary or heartwarming and you get that quick cut to your main character for just a few frames smiling or laughing or widening their eyes in surprise or crying out in fear this is the proscribed reaction in which the filmmaker is telling you this is how you're supposed to react this is what you're supposed to be feeling right now and when an author has the audacity to do this I think it needs to be done subtly it needs to be done deftly I'm not saying it can't be done just build it up over a longer period of time. Give the reader the tools and lead them to that question. Don't just up and throw a random character at the beginning going, Oh, I wonder how that happened. Right at the beginning of your book, man. I was like, what? It took so, me back. I, sorry. That, I'll, that I'll actually, stop. it felt very YA. Like very okay. young adult style. And the reason that I thought that was because of my entrance to the Wheel of Time. I first read The Eye of the World as the young adult split print version. Same. That includes a new prologue. Ravens? That, yes, Ravens, that ends with a, a young character going, I wonder what actually happened back then anyway. And then it yeah. goes into what actually happened back then anyway. And yeah. like... Uh, and and it was more or less the same thing here, only just in reverse, where it's like, you've already seen how it happened, and then now you have a character being like, oh, I wonder how that happened. You know? Uh, and, and I gotta say, so this is my main miscellaneous thing. 
Like, that prologue was weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It was. Like, I, I... I don't understand why it was as long as it was. I feel like it didn't add anything. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, I can think of two other prologues and fantasy series that happened way before the rest of the story. Stormlight Archive and Wheel of Time. Crazy. And yep. both of those, by the end of the first book, I think you have some idea why that prologue happened. By the end mm-hmm. of Rage of Dragons, I still don't know why we had that prologue. It just showed them arriving. But we have that information come up later organically. Like, hey, we are not originally from here. We came across. Which is the only thing that in the first book um, really is important about that prologue. Yeah. Yeah, I did like these little moments later too where they noticed like the wood from oh damn it what's the name of that land Osanta oh damn it um, oh yeah Osante Osante something like that yeah I think that sounds about right the the, the yeah, door yeah, the wooden door, the door made of yeah, Osante yeah. and I was like oh see this kind of it's just wood but it feels like I'm reverent it feels magical like it, I did like these little moments of the again this little hint this little question as to the deeper lore that was done well. But at the beginning, just having a character voice what felt to me like was a proscribed question, not mm-hmm. to the character but to the reader. Okay. I was like, oh, that's a little heavy-handed, okay. isn't I, it?" I I want to I want to just make sure your your meaning here, Rob. Are you saying prescribed or proscribed? Because sorry, proscribed. proscribed I do not mean proscribed. Forbidden. Sorry, okay. sorry, prescribed. Yeah. <laughs> now that I consider it, yes, thank you. Okay. I was I was like, wait, did I hear that right, or am I? Oh my god, I must have said Rob. proscribed about six times, didn't I? <laughs> Okay. It's okay. <laughs> oh boy. Thank you for. I at least thank you for telling me that, or at least asking me to clarify that, because I would have continued saying proscribe probably till the end of the fucking podcast. All right. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure I was like understanding. No, no, you. no. Thank you. <laughs> and in the future, please do that more. <laughs> now I'm starting to wonder what other words that have I, I've been botching completely in the, in the past, and Drew is just too polite to say anything. Mm, I know one. Uh oh! Tell me after the podcast is done. I'm going to need to hear this. One. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Don't forget it though. Um, question. <laughs> I have a question about the lore, or not the, really the lore, the plot. Maybe this is something I just missed in a in a description somewhere along the line. Um, the queen has siblings, right? Yes. She has an older she brother. Has she a has a younger sister. sister. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. The prince who died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the prince is dead. Prince is dead. How did right. he die? Yeah. Uh, the the Hedeni ambush. Yeah, so he Where was in the, the group with Kellen, who yeah. got routed. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's that. That was my question. I was going to ask what happened to Zolani. That was like something happened. I missed it. Thank you. Okay. All right. Yeah. 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 The younger sister um, was declared rebel queen. AC. AC. Yeah. Yeah. The one who's like a little unhinged, right? Oh, I. I just had the impression that she was being manipulated by Odili. That he, yeah. like... Yeah, I mean, in the beginning of the book, we uh, Burko tells... I forget who he's talking to. He said the the brother doesn't count, Zolani. They're talking about the succession and, and, and lineage. And Princess Essi is unsettled, is the word that he used. And this is at the beginning of the book. Yeah. Sums up with her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's got trauma, or she's got some sort of condition, I think. I'm going to predict... Okay. All right. Uh, Alex is just over there zipping his mouth. Yeah, yeah. Did we all catch the famous quote by Winston Churchill? I assume you two did. 
Tao gritted his teeth, thinking, if you're already in the underworld, don't stop there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, there was another one, and I can't remember where the original quote is from, or where the... Uh, I actually don't know if it's technically the original quote. Maybe this is the original, because I don't know timelines, because I don't remember where I heard it, but... I think I know uh, what say. The, the whole thing where he yells at Odile and he's like, you know, you killed my father, and he's like, I've killed many fathers. You're going to have to be more specific. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, Abasi Odili, I have the quote right here. Abasi Odili, you murdered my father and destroyed my life. I'm here to balance the scales. And Odili's response is, do you have the slightest idea how little that narrows it down? That's not actually Odili's yeah, response. Yeah. That's that's the meme right there. Or the show into the meme. Yes, I know it's not originally a meme. But yeah, I loved it. And I even just loved like, the, the way that introductory line felt. You know, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Yeah. Prepare to die. You know, I just... That it didn't bother me at all. Time. I loved it. <laughs> What's that? That that line can only be done one time, and it's in the Princess Bride. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing, I'm going to complain a little bit again about realism here. I want to, you know, go into what any longtime listeners are probably expecting out of me here. This this book suffers really badly from the Walking Dead physics, doesn't it? Where human bodies are just so fragile that heads can be lopped off with barely any yes. effort, and skulls can be pierced, and bodies can be cloven into like we're scything through grain. Yeah, I, I remember I, the scene with Dasso. I had to reread because she straight up beheads a guy with a spear. Wait, what? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> she is. Oh my god, I missed that. at the time, but I still like. Yeah, spears are not cutting instruments. Like. Yeah, if anything, you would explode their head before you manage to cut it off, right? Yeah, There's a moment yeah. near the beginning when, when actually, I think this is in the prologue, in, in that really long prologue, where someone was beheaded by a hatchet. A yes. freaking hatchet. <laughs> beheaded by a hatchet. I was like, okay. And we keep getting descriptions of Tao just beheading motherfuckers left and right. Like, limbs being chopped through cleanly. That, oh, I got a quote here. Tao leapt back, fear lending him speed, and the hatchet's blade missed past his knee, or hissed past his kneecap, a hair's breadth from taking his leg off at the knee. Like, listen, if that hair's breadth weren't there, hair's breadth weren't there, the hatchet would have probably scratched him because it's a hatchet. Maybe it would have bruised him. Not to take <laughs> off his leg. At best, Especially it gets lodged in your like, you know. And how if it patella. doesn't leave a scratch? <laughs> Is it a hair's breadth away from taking your leg off at the knee? It doesn't work. <laughs> hold on, can't hold think on. About it you know what? what? You know what? I told you about this. I have a hatchet right here. Oh my god! I'm gonna quote the rule of cool here. It, it's fine. It's cool. I love it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a coincidence! I just realized this because I'm I'm mixing a whole bunch of soilless mix back here in the basement on the concrete floor, and I have a a hatchet that I've been using to break apart the coconut husk. Can you behead somebody with this? I can't. I say no. I can't. I haven't tried. Well, I really doubt that sure. I could. Okay. Oh, now that man. I'm a little... I haven't even been drinking on this episode, and I'm fired up. Alright. Um, oh, what's that? Another thing that pisses off Rob, you ask? <laughs> Let me tell you! I've complained about this one before. Um, this was actually during Rhythm of War that I complained about this last... <clears throat> people cannot deliver speeches while they are fighting or while mm. they're sparring 
It does not work like that. It requires too much brain power to construct a sentence. And while your opponent is trying to throw you to the ground, or sometimes trying to kill you, you really can't deliver an inspiring motivational speech. And <clears throat> as much as I like the character of Jayed, he manages to spar with multiple students of his at the same time while yeah. delivering one of the most inspiring speeches I've read in months. And I was just like, come on. This could have... We could have separated these two scenes, I think. But... Okay. All right. I'm gonna. You know what? I'm done complaining. That's it. I'm done complaining. You guys can take right. the lead now. <laughs> go ahead. Well, I'm I'm ready to go into three favorite scenes if uh, if you guys are. Yeah, I'm ready for yeah. that. Okay. All, All right. right. I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna go first here, just because I. Uh, I don't feel super strongly about any of my favorite scenes. Okay. Um, but I think my third favorite was. Uh, <clears throat> where Tao gets his scar. Um, I That was one of the few points where I felt like there was good, like, realistic... You know, this is... This is a, a guy who's not trained in combat, whatever, but he has a knife and the element of surprise. He's gonna mess you up. And, and I appreciated that it gave Tao a... You know, a, a physical scar to go with the spiritual wound he has just suffered you know there was some good thematic interplay there and it it, it was that crossing the threshold moment <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, gotta bring it back of him uh you know leaving leaving karem and crossing and, the threshold yes you know, that was venturing out into the greater world mm. so, so yeah that was that was my third favorite Cool. Alex, your third favorite scene. Yeah, so um, when the scale is going through the Guardian Tunnels to get to the keep, there's a scene where Tao is feeling claustrophobic, and he tries oh. to fight these guys, and he just he's like he's drunk. He can't swing his sword, he's missing everything, and I, I love it. It's just such a weird flaw for a character to have. I, I would never expect a character to have claustrophobia as one of their flaws. Well, oh, damn it, I can't say that's going to spoil it. I was thinking about another character from a certain series, too, that also has claustrophobia, at least develops claustrophobia. Maybe I should remove it because we see them develop that. Yeah, but I, 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 I felt constricted. I felt tight of breath, you know, in that scene. And I'm not a claustrophobic person, so I think that really speaks to the power of Winter's writing when he chooses to employ it. Yeah, this was built up too. It wasn't just like, oh, we find out it's claustrophobic <laughs> there. It's mentioned at other times, and I appreciated that as well. Yeah, we see it uh, in the the battle at Daba at the beginning, where they're going through like the warehouse, and and Tao starts freaking out. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, my third favorite: Tao visiting Udwak in the infirmary. Love that scene. The silent shame conversation about Udwak being the strongest where he's from, you know, and this this question of, and this arising point of the demon inside of Tao, which coincidentally, it's a prediction that I want to make, actually. I want to make the prediction that this is going to be important for the future of the series, that being, not the, the, the scene I'm talking about, but that detail, the demon inside of Tao. We keep getting this description of this animal, this demon inside of him from the eyes of other characters when we're reading them, you know, especially, especially Kellen. I think 
Tao's resilience and his determination are otherworldly, ultimately, and he may have more in common with the demons of Isihago than he knows. But yeah, I, I the scene though. I was hoping, you know, somebody would bring up that that uh, that detail in the scene where he's fighting Kellen. Uh, Kellen like is describing Tao, and he's yes. like, you know, he's got the normal dark skin and wiry frame and brown eyes, but what isn't normal is that his eyes were burning. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, are his eyes actually like? Is there some inner fire that's glowing behind his eyes? Like, is this supposed to be a nod to him having supernatural, you know, ability? Is this an actual demon that has possessed him? Yeah. Or is this him, is this Winter really awkwardly trying to, like, describe, like, as, I, don't, I don't know Or how is it, I... like, the emotions that he's I mean, riding, like, like, something I've... else is influencing that rage or feeding that rage? yeah. yeah. So, so oh. I'd, I'd be curious about that, but, but yeah, the scene itself though, that with that that kind of intimate, yeah. olive branch between Udwak and Tao, and the shame and Tao seeing what he's done, you know, and having mm-hmm. to deal with the consequences of his of losing control, you know, that that really broke my heart, and I was not expecting for Udwak to become a sympathetic character, and he did, and so I really love this scene. Okay. Well, my third favorite, or my second favorite, excuse me, uh, was the scene after the peace summit where Tao encounters the Hedeni scout. It was super short, but I, I thought there was really good thematic impact there where we just saw, you know, the Hedeni and the, uh, and the Omehi meeting ostensibly to discuss peace and being super confrontational and antagonistic about it. And then immediately after we have Tao run into a Hedeni scout, ostensibly under, you know, violent, in a violent situation, and going about it despite having no basis for communication, peacefully. It was a really good, uh, you know, Ooh. reflection of those two scenes. Nicely spotted. I wouldn't even consider those in context with one another. Damn. I really like that, especially considering how violent a person Tao is. That oh my god is incredible that he was actually able to hold back. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Okay, Alex, your second favorite scene. So, when Tao is uh, going through his initiation into the Yashi, and he's going in his first fight, and he's losing terribly. I just yeah. love that scene where he's insulting the governor, trying to get him riled up so he can do the one thing that'll let him pass, which is getting hit in the head. Mm-hmm. Drew, I know this gives him a head injury, but I, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, this is a pretty good tactic for someone who, throughout the rest of the book, is not that great at tactics. He takes the time yeah. to get him riled up for a wild swing that he can get hit in the right place for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of devilry from Tao there. Yeah, nice bamboozling. Okay, um, my second favorite is Tao waking up from his horrible hangover and hearing his father screaming, "I'll kill him! I'll kill him!" And then we find out what Lekan Lekan had done to the family that was saved from him earlier that previous night. Mm-hmm. Arin's completely understandable reaction: the fury, the rage. 
the righteous decision that is beyond reason, and then they will hang Tao. And have and Tao having to watch his father, helpless, crying in the dirt. That was some powerful, powerful stuff right there. So that's my second favorite scene. Nice. Well, my favorite scene, uh, Rob, you've already talked about. It was... Uh, oh? It was Tao going in to visit Uduak. As he, oh, nice. As he recovered. Sniped. Uh, great, great um, just character moment. Uh, growth for both of the characters. Yeah. Really enjoyed that one. Hmm. So Glad that you agree. My favorite, uh, probably unsurprising to you guys, is going to be an action scene. And it's actually that Dasso head taker point of view. Ooh. Uh-huh. I, I love it. Just uh, two quick quotes, right? It's head taker of tribe Tuango, who feared no man um, at all, or, or sorry, who feared no man under all the gods, readjusted her spear grip, um, breathed deep through her nose, turned and ran. And then later, Dasso Headtaker feared, feared no man, but she knew the truth. Two swords was not a man. I think that this was the best use of that switch in POV, like I said. Like, we can just feel the fear from this incredibly fearsome warrior. Like Drew mentioned earlier, she beheaded someone with a spear, and then she sees Tao running <laughs> at her. It's like, oh, nope, I'm going to go home. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. head out. That was her in that moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. SpongeBob. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm gonna head out. <laughs> All right, so many millennial memes pop up on this show here, Alex. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, so my All right, fa- Rob. Yeah, what's your my favorite? favorite scene was a particular moment during the climax, and I'm gonna read it here. I have my e-reader open to the page. <clears throat> How did you not see him? Tao asked, unkneeling Kellen. Lesser, the vizier said, when in the presence of her Majesty. He can't have gone far, Tao insisted. I have to find Lesser, the vizier shouted over Tao. Tao, kneel, hissed Kellen. Tao did not. He rounded on the vizier, taking a long step in her direction. Call me Lesser one more time. Yeah. The magnitude of that threat Mm -hmm. with those six words. I mean, obviously, brings to mind that Hancock scene, too. Again, call me asshole one more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But golden. Go- no word wasted. Not a single one. I loved that scene. How much menace that Winter managed to put into those six words was just nothing short of spectacular. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. So that's my favorite scene. Nice. Very nice. So. Uh, well, I think uh, that... Leads us to the final draft, then, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so. Oh, one last point about the audiobook narrator. I did get the audiobook for this as well, so I can listen oh, to it okay. as I fall asleep and then continue again when I wake up sometimes if I have a couple hours to myself in the morning. The audiobook narrator, this may be a really inappropriate observation, may have the most erotic voice I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I like to consider myself a particularly straight man, but this guy's voice. <laughs> Very nice. It's very nice. That's all I'm gonna say. Better, better than the uh, the narrator for Dreams of Steel. Oh God. Listen, <laughs> there's different kinds of better, Drew. Okay. <laughs> uh, Alex, did did I see you had a, a, another point to make? Oh no, I'm just oh, ready okay. for the final draft. Yeah. All right, sweet. Uh, Rob, do you want to kick us off? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, blow any minds with my entry today as I'm doing the same thing I've done for the past seven or eight podcasts now, something like that. I'm just drinking water. I, I'm still on my sober streak. I haven't had a drink in like 53 days, 54 days in, in 21 minutes and uh, probably still going to be going for at least another 40, 50, something like that. So I'm just drinking some good old-fashioned dihydrogen monoxide, you know. Liquidate, liquidating. Oh my God! Liquefying the organ. No. Oh, that's that's very dangerous. Hydrating Didn't the you organs. know that it's... dihydrogen monoxide is a dangerous chemical, Rob? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's a joke. Am I completely it's off black here? Yes, it's a you joke. are. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, there's a there was like a petition that went around years ago, like to ban dihydrogen monoxide, because like to make fun of. Dumb yeah. Okay. People. Okay. I got you. I was gonna say, dude. I just I just started taking chemistry again. There's no way I'm fucking this up. Okay. You had me worried there uh, after uh, proscribing uh, yeah, things. So, Alex, uh, what are you drinking? So I have a cider from Crafted Artisan Meadery. Um, it is, you know, apple mead with cherry and raspberry added. It's called Dragon Heart, and my beer is for Zuri. Ooh. She died too soon. She has the dragon's heart, in my opinion. So, Ooh. Yeah. Yes. Try I'll drink to her right now. Hold on. <laughs> drink to Zuri. Where's my water? Here it is. Very nice. To Zuri. Mm. Ah, big old two-liter bottle. All right. Okay. Drew. Well, I mentioned this earlier. A beer I'm drinking is a golden mixed sour ale. Aged on Colorado plums, and as you can guess, it is uh, from a Colorado brewery. It is True Brewing in Denver, Colorado, uh, whom I have featured many times on this podcast before. 6.0% alcohol by volume. It is very sour, uh, very fruity. Uh, I mean, I've I've had, uh, I don't know, about two-thirds of the small bottle. It's a 375 milliliter bottle, a little over 12 fluid ounces. And uh, my stomach is is definitely rumbling from the the acidity, oh, yeah. uh, but it but it's it's very very tasty, and this one also goes out to Zuri, and it's called Spirit Ritual. Oh, nice, nice. Oh. I like it. Yeah, I've had that one sitting yes. in the fridge for a while now, waiting for a good book, you know, that it would fit, and I was like, oh, you know what, this would be perfect. Today's so, the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that is a wrap for us today. Uh, this is not a normal number episode. I'm not exactly certain when this one's going to be coming out, uh, but I'm guessing it'll be sometime in the middle of our gap cycle episodes. <laughs> uh, we're we're recording this uh, basically at the end of April, so I'm guessing it'll come out in I don't know May, sometime in May. Uh, but you know more than I. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're we're a little bit in flux right now. We've we've recorded a few bonus episodes like this, uh, you know, that we'll be releasing uh, in addition to our regularly scheduled content. So keep your eyes peeled for that. If you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com/inkingoutloud. We got all kinds of fun bonus content there, including early access to episodes and access to original fiction written by Rob or myself. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey. And with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. And our special guest, Alex, from A Hero's Journey. Go check out A Hero's Journey if you haven't yet. Yes. Yes. Guys, Wonderful thanks for podcast, wonderful guests. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, go go listen to them uh, talk about the Rage of Dragons. I'm I'm expecting in a more favorable light than we did. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Probably yeah. <laughs> safe bet. Um, not not that I not that I hated this book, but you know, it's a. Uh, it's what we do on Inking Out it's, Loud. It's, it's really weird, because I can't say I really like this book, but I really want to read book two. I, so, I hope you guys do. What I, what I told one of my friends um, was, it's a fun book, it's not a good book. <laughs> there you, hey, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> that, that was my like walk away from You from managed Nintendo, to sum I up, like... I might as well not even have been talking for an hour and a half. You summed up all of my thoughts on this book in that one sentence. Yeah, I mean, and and that may be you know uncharitable of me to say, but but that was that was my uh, <laughs> that was my initial impression. Yeah, I um, mean, it had but, all this action that was awesome. I just couldn't get past the contrived, stereotypical "I'm going to become the best to avenge my father's murder" sort of plot. It was <laughs> it's 500 pages of swordplay porn. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, the, but that's thinking out loud. We don't we don't pull our punches. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna say it the way we see it. Yeah, and uh, and. I know that may piss some people off sometimes. We've gotten a couple of angry emails over the. I can hear the, the furious years. keyboards clacking now. But uh, but look, you know, this is this is what we do. This is what we enjoy doing. And uh, I I hope I hope all of our listeners are out there uh, at least having some entertainment from from Rob getting angry and and, and and holding a hatchet into the camera and screaming. Would you be able to head some of this? <laughs> Exactly. Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, you know, as always, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone. Where did that hatchet go? Where did I put it? Oh, there it is.